Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. War over words. Harvard's president is under pressure to resign, but hundreds of faculty members say the administration should resist those calls. The director of Harvard's Center for Jewish Studies tells us why. The price of freedom. With Ukraine's president in Washington to press for more aid money, a Ukrainian MP tells us what's at stake and what he heard in D.C. when he visited lawmakers feuding over the funding last week. Moving the goalposts, Canada's sports minister announces a new independent commission to tackle abuse in sport, which she says is a better idea than the public inquiry advocates were pushing for. Getting harder to recoup. A Manitoba egg farmer is disappointed that a voting marathon by the Conservatives didn't get rid of the carbon tax on heating his barn because the expense has him worried about counting his chickens before they hatch. Father in outlaw, in the last months of his life, Ashley Randall's dad revealed a shocking secret. Now she's untangling her father's past as a fugitive and coming to terms with who he was before he was her father. And party animus. If you're worried that people hate you when you skip their parties, a new study suggests you should relax. Except careful reading of that study suggests you should probably go anyway. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that keeps you guesting. One down, two to go. That was the reaction of Republican Representative Elise Stefanik after the president of the University of Pennsylvania resigned on Saturday. The two people still in the congresswoman's sights are the president of MIT and Harvard President Claudine Gay. All three failed to give yes or no answers to questions about whether students calling for the genocide of Jews would be punished at a hearing in Washington last week. Over 70 congressional representatives have signed a letter calling for their jobs, but at Harvard this weekend, about 700 faculty members signed a letter calling for the university's administrators to, quote, resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, unquote. Derek Penzlar is the director of Harvard's Center for Jewish Studies and one of the organizers of the faculty letter. We reached him in Cambridge, Massachusetts this afternoon as Harvard's leadership met to discuss President Gay's fate. Professor Penslar, why do you feel President Gay should keep her job? Well, I guess the question would be, why should she lose her job? Because it's a very serious thing to remove a president from uh, from office outside of the end of their uh, outside of the end of their term. So that's the question. What has President Gay done? Well, she has um, made some mistakes. There's no question about it. And her leadership since October seventh has raised a lot of questions. And in particular, her testimony before Congress last week uh, was ineffective and, again, Mm -hmm. very mistaken. But uh, there's a lot of people at Harvard who know the president to be a smart person, a good person. She was very effective as a dean uh, before she became president. And the bar would have to be awfully high 
Now, and most people at Harvard don't think that she's fallen below that bar. But the other issue is that if there is going to be a conversation about something as severe as removing a president, it should not be simply a response to external political pressures. Ultimately, it's about who, who makes decisions at a university. And, uh, you know, if, if we cave into political pressures on this issue, what, what's going to happen at every other university in the United States? Are, are outside political pressures going to determine who gets to teach there and what's going to get taught? So there is a, a much bigger principle at stake here. And then there's the particular issue about President Gay and people who believe that uh, we need to have conversations with her moving forward about leadership. But uh, you know, removing a university president is it's a pretty serious business. What would you have liked to hear her say and the other university leaders say when they were asked, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate the rules of bullying and harassment you know, at their respective schools? Well, they were all manipulated and pushed into a trap. They were coached by lawyers before the uh, hearing to say things that are legally true. That is, they were thinking, as it were, as if they were in a court of law and they didn't want to fall into a problem of you know, legal liability and that could get them into uh, maybe the danger of lawsuits against the university. What they didn't really take into account at that moment was that they were being really manipulated into making a very simplistic statement about a hugely complicated question, which is not about genocide. It's about what sort of things people are saying on campus now about the Palestinians and about Israel. And do those things amount to a call for genocide? So it was really an unfair question, but Congresswoman Stefanik is a very effective, manipulative person. And the presidents, unfortunately, fell right into the trap. They shouldn't have. They should have known better. What do you think they should have said in response? I think they should have said exactly what President Gay said when she had the, the time to collect her thoughts the next day, which is that calling for genocide against any community would violate, first of all, her own conscience, and it would violate any university's code of conduct. I mean, that's very clear if you're going to ask, you're going to talk about genocide. But that was simply kind of a carryover from another discussion, mm -hmm. which was about, is it hateful, is it genocidal to make certain statements about Israel, Palestine, and the Palestinians. And those are really important questions that we need to talk about at Harvard. We need to figure out what kind of speech is amounting to a call for genocide and what kind of speech is critical but doesn't rise to that level. So I would have liked President Gay to be able to say in Congress what she said in her message the following day. But she didn't think quickly enough on her feet, and she made a big mistake. Even if it is a trap or, or a setup, as you as you were suggesting, political manipulation, do you do you understand and hear the concerns from people across the the political spectrum who just cannot wrap their heads around how this this group of leaders did not say or this kind of language is not acceptable on our campus? Can you understand I, why I they totally. think that that they 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 shouldn't be the leaders of these these important institutions? The problem is, in a way, these leaders who are very smart people. Mm -hmm. In a way, they're caught by the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which is very different from Canada. Okay, America has very different laws regarding free speech than Canada does. There is a breadth and a, 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 a width of what's considered acceptable and protected speech in the United States that might shock people elsewhere in the world. Uh, including, by the way, under, I, I mean, the First Amendment can protect all kinds of hateful speech. And then the question is, okay, a private university like Harvard or Penn or MIT, 
doesn't have to abide by First Amendment protections. But then what are those regulations going to be, and how are they going to be enforced? I do appreciate the sensibilities of people who were offended by those comments. I was horrified (laughs) by those comments, but I understood where they were coming from. They were not coming from a position of hatred. They were coming from a position of dealing with the American legal system and the difficulty assigning limits to free speech in an American context. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. We have to have leadership from the top modeling informed and substantive and civil conversation about serious divisive issues like Israel-Palestine. Is that modeling happening? Are they doing that? We're doing it. We, the faculty, picked up the slack because there wasn't enough leadership coming from the president's office in the last few months. And so myself and professors in various departments, we have been working now on having public events where we, we talk about what's going on in a way where we don't agree necessarily, but we're civil and we talk in an informed manner, and we're forward-looking. We try to propose solutions. There was going to be a meeting, if I'm not mistaken, today uh, about the president's fate. Uh, do, you, do you know any details of what has come from that meeting and, and or when you'll get an answer? I do not know. Mm-hmm. I know that the corporation is meeting now. Corporation is the name of the body that's mm-hmm. sort of the highest governing body of Harvard. A huge number of Harvard faculty signed a statement yesterday that wasn't necessarily an endorsement of, of President Gay, but it, it, it was the assertion of, of Harvard's or the affirmation of Harvard's autonomy. And hopefully the corporation got the message. But we'll see. I'll, I'll just hope for the best. Professor Pensler, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Derek Penslar is the director of Harvard's Center for Jewish Studies. We reached him in Cambridge, Massachusetts. probably saw the headlines, members of parliament enduring a 30-hour voting marathon, the House of Commons smelling like fast food, ministers nodding off in their seats, and a photo at the end of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau embracing Conservative MP Shannon Stubbs in a show of solidarity. But in the end, there wasn't much of a resolution. The purpose of the marathon vote by Conservatives late last week was to force the Liberals to axe the tax. That didn't happen. One of those taxes is on the natural gas and propane that farmers use to dry grains and heat their barns. Kurt Siemens is a third-generation egg farmer, and he recently spoke to the investigative news site The Narwhal about that tax. We reached him on his farm in Rosenort, Manitoba. Kurt, what is this price on carbon or carbon tax? What is it costing you right now? So just on my on my last statement for my natural gas for our farm here is the statement was for $1,700, and it was, I think, a few cents short of $600 of that was carbon tax and the tax on the tax kind of thing put that's, together. So That's for a month? That's for one month, yeah. And that probably wouldn't be our highest month yet because that only partially caught with the uh, the month where we had to heat for our little baby chicks in our mm-hmm. one pull-up barn. You're in Manitoba. The winters are cold, obviously, including on a day like today. You have an egg farm, as you've said, and you have to keep the, the, the barns warm. Just just describe yes. that, that, that operation and those logistics for our listeners who don't, don't have a farm. We have three barns, two with the laying hens and then one with the little baby chicks where they 
grow them to be old enough to become laying hens eventually. So, uh, yeah, so we it's all free run system. All three barns are free run, so the birds uh, have loose housing. They can run around freely inside the building. So, we need to add heat to uh, to make sure that those birds are comfortable and that, mm-hmm. that they do well through the through our beautiful Manitoba winters. <laughs> so, given given the reality and those numbers uh, that you, that you're seeing on your bills. When you're seeing what was happening in the House of Commons, when there was this this marathon vote, as you're watching that unfold, what did you think? Uh, <laughs> a little bit disappointed. I mean, it's uh, it's politics, and, and I understand that. I mean, there's each party has their own, uh, I guess, their own platforms that they want to work off of. But uh, it's it's disappointing for me because now I see it doesn't look like if the the bill is actually going to go through so we will continue to pay this this carbon tax so it it does get uh, a little bit disheartening but i guess like i said before it's a cost of doing business but it's not something we we necessarily want to see when we're trying to produce some good wholesome quality food for our customers so do you feel uh, that the politicians whichever party they belong to do you do you feel that they're acting in your best interest I think they're trying. I mean, I understand both sides. But I mean, no, I don't want to pay it. And yes, we have to figure out how we're going to move, uh, keep, take care of our environment as well. So I see, kind of see both sides of it. It just, uh, it's tough when, when uh, you know, all our costs are going up and then we have to pay carbon tax on top of that yet. And, and I'm just trying to produce a, you know, a super healthy, high protein food product for our consumers. So it uh, it does make it tough, that's for sure. Yeah, the bill at the heart of this, as you were referring to C-234, it is stuck in the Senate right now. It's been getting very heated. The Conservatives and Liberals have exchanged allegations of, of bullying and intimidation. One senator said she had to leave her home because of outside threats. So it's, as we said, it's become very heated, very partisan. But, you know, if, if those politicians are listening right now, and many of them are, what would a break on the carbon tax mean for you and your farm? I, I think it would it would make it uh, our farm more sustainable. I mean, we rebuilt all our barns in from 2017 to 2019. All our barns have been rebuilt, re-insulated. We have high-efficiency boilers. We have floor heat everywhere. So we're doing a lot of stuff to become, you know, to do a better job, be more sustainable as a farm. But the carbon tax doesn't stop. I mean, when when you don't have a whole lot of other options for for heating fuel, then uh, mm-hmm. it it's tough. I wish they would decide something or, or find something. And and I don't like it when certain industries or certain people would would get a break and others don't. Like I mean, I guess they have to figure that out somewhere along the line. I'm glad that they get a break, but uh, to cherry pick certain industries that that's probably not. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't look good for the rest of them looking in, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned you understand the environmental challenges and you guys have already put in some measures, as you said, to, to, to try to help in ways that you can right now, new technology. But ultimately, if a, if a carbon tax isn't a solution, what would you like to see the government do differently? Because as you know, there's concerns that if if different interest groups get their way and and Get, get each get breaks, then the whole system is going to unravel, and that's going to be more problematic in the long run. So, what's the solution in your view? Uh, I'm a farmer <laughs> on the farm here. I, I don't, I, I don't have the solution. I, I think there's probably programs that they can 
put out. I know there's some programs in Manitoba here that, that some of my neighbor farmers, they tried to uh, become more sustainable, more environmentally positive, and they did, went through the whole program in the end said, well, no, you don't qualify. That's hard on a farmer when uh, it doesn't make him or her want to try and do it again, right? So yeah. I think government programs that are easily accessible would be would be awesome. What do you think the disconnect is? Because we do hear politicians say, you know, we're, we're doing this for, for the farmers or, or we're looking out uh, for their future as well, or we have these programs. What's the disconnect between your reality and what they're saying? Uh, I, I think the disconnect is, you know, when we get the carbon tax, we don't have much choice. You know, we could spend it on other other products to supply that heat. But I've looked at some of them, and the return on investment, it, it just doesn't, doesn't work. It's too expensive, the technology. So is there government grants to allow us to get into that technology? So that's also a positive. But uh, it has to be, you know, it has to be worth a, worth a while, the, the money you spend and the labor and, uh, and uh, you know, all your due diligence that you do to have put it into your facilities. So, so as that bill goes up and up, as you're expecting in, in the new year, um, h- how are you going to deal with those costs? Those are not small numbers. I, we'll just pay. I mean, it's it's a matter of paying. Will it reflect in, in the cost of eggs moving forward? Probably at some point. It's going to, uh, it, it might take a while, but will the cost of eggs go up in the grocery stores to our consumers? Most likely. I, I think uh, having a great agriculture base in Canada is, is very important. So uh, I think we somewhere along the line, we have to figure out how to do this better. Kurt, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Kurt Siemens is an egg farmer from Rosenort, Manitoba. That is where we reached him. Before he died of lung cancer two years ago, Thomas Rando lived a quiet suburban life with his wife and daughter in Linfield, Massachusetts. And just two months before he died, he told his wife and daughter something that left them reeling. After his first round of chemotherapy, they were watching NCIS together, one of his favorite shows, when Mr. Randall unburdened himself of a secret. He told them he'd been on the run from authorities for more than five decades and that his real name wasn't even Thomas Randall. It was Ted Conrad. Ashley Randall is his only daughter. She's the co-host of a new podcast called Smokescreen, My Fugitive Dad. We reached Ms. Randall in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Ashley, I suspect that that moment when you type in Ted Conrad on your computer and then hit search, that's not the kind of moment that you really could ever forget. No, it it honestly felt like something out of a Lifetime movie. Because who who suspects that when they look up their parents' birth name that they're going to find headlines that say, you know, vault teller steals money, fugitive still on the run. I mean, crazy and also terrifying. It must have been a complicated mix of emotions because on one hand, the dad, as you know him, is extremely ill and on his deathbed, and then you find out this information and then find out more through your search. So what was that mix of emotions at that time? So shocked, I wish there were a bigger word for shocked and incredibly confused because I shared everything with my parents. My parents and I have always been incredibly close and my dad is not somebody that you ever suspected would keep a secret. 
let alone a secret this big. So this all dates back to 1969, July of that year. We're talking about more than $200,000 or the equivalent of mm-hmm. about $1.8 million U.S. today. Yeah. So, so many things to to digest for you. Uh, and I wonder, after you did that initial search and, and the few things your father had told you and asked you not to keep looking, were you able to get any more information from him in subsequent conversations before he passed? Yes. Yeah, so... Thankfully, the next day, you know, I spoke to my dad and I told him that I had looked him up and I knew what had happened in July of 69, Mm -hmm. but that that did not change how I felt about him. And it didn't change how I looked at him. And he was still my dad. And I love him. Mm -hmm. And the look of relief on his face. And I said, you know, we have to tell mom. I ended up telling my mom on my own because he just couldn't bring himself to tell her. He was just so afraid of hurting her. Um, My mom was equally, if not more, shocked than I was because I essentially said, I I know Dad's name, but I can't even tell you. We're just going to have to look it up together, and you're going to need to read about it like I did because I can't even say it because it's too insane. And then the three of us were able to have some really difficult but good conversations over the next few weeks. The biggest thing that we just impressed upon my dad immediately was, you know, we love you. You know, my mom to say, like, you're my husband, and I love you, and you're the best husband. And it's, you know, not to say it's okay and not to say it's it's fine to, you know, commit a crime, but that in the grand scheme of things, this is not what we're harping on in the last weeks of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things we need to talk about. We do need answers. And one of the reasons, honestly, that I launched this podcast was to find out answers about who my dad was before he had me and really why he did what he did. One of the remarkable things, many remarkable things, though, you would imagine someone with such a big secret for so long, you know, might be might be nervous or, you know, as you replay, as I'm sure you have moments in your life. um, Did you ever see signs of that kind of nervousness? And, and things that now you look back on and go, oh, maybe that was a sign that we missed? My dad was never nervous. He was just the most relaxed, calm person I ever knew. Personally, I am a very anxious person. <laughs> so his calmness was always just like a breath of fresh air for me. So he never seemed nervous. He was never someone who seemed like they were looking over their shoulder There were none of those signs. But looking back to your point of maybe with hindsight, what do I notice? When I was in high school, I went on a trip to France through school, like through the French class I was in. And parents could be chaperones. And so my mom said, yes, I'll be a chaperone. When else am I going to get to go to France? Tommy, let's go. You can be a chaperone too. And his response was, nah. I don't want to go to France. You girls go have fun. I'll stay home with the cat. And at the <laughs> time, I remember thinking, weird choice, Tom, but okay. But now I look back and think, he could not have gone to France because you need a, a passport right. to travel internationally. Mm. And my dad never had a passport because he never had like a fake birth certificate. Right. He'd just taken on this name. Yeah, so he had a Social Security card, and he had a real Mm -hmm. Social Security card. Like, Mm -hmm. in 1970, 
when he got to Boston, he went into the local registrar's office and just got, it's a real social security card. It's not forged. Uh, We spoke about your father on this program back in 2021 when there was that big break in the case, as you mentioned, and we interviewed U.S. Marshal Peter J. Elliott about the case, breaking that case after your father's Mm -hmm. death. So here's a little bit of what he told us. Have a listen. So we went to the house where Randall was living and, uh, and, you know, interviewed his wife and his daughter. And at the uh, end of the day, um, before Randall passed away, he gave a confession to his wife and his daughter saying that it is really Theodore J. Conrad. So he, had, he lived this entire married life. He lived for all these decades under this alias, under this assumed identity. That's correct. He did it since 1970s. You were on the other side of that door when they came knocking. You had planned, you and your mother had planned after grieving your father for a year that you were going to, to go to authorities, but, but they came to you first. So were you terrified in those moments? So my mom answered the door yeah. and she came upstairs. I was in my bedroom and she told me the U.S. Marshals were here. And I've never been more terrified in my life because... I don't know them, and why are they here, and what do they want? I mean, we know why they're here, but still. And I remember coming downstairs and seeing Pete for the first time. And thank goodness, the first thing out of his mouth to my mom and I was, you are not in trouble. (laughs) You can exhale in that moment, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone has a job to do, right? And Pete is the U.S. Marshal, and he's been looking for my dad essentially his whole life. And his father had as well. But, and his father, John. Yeah, I mean, and you read it. And I had read about them. I knew who Pete was because I'd read these articles. And from everything I'd read, he seemed like such a stand-up guy, like the kind of guy that that's what you want law enforcement to be. Who do you think tipped them off? I wish I knew. <laughs> um, from my understanding, somebody sent my dad's obituary to a crime writer in Ohio. And that crime writer sent it along to the marshals. The U.S. Marshal uh, Elliott said that his father had, had talked about your dad and said, you know, people see him as this sort of Robin Hood character. But in the end, he, he was a thief and that people should mm-hmm. remember that. How do you digest that sentiment about your dad? So I completely understand, obviously, where John Elliott is coming from, right? Like a kid in his own neighborhood takes off with the equivalent of $1.8 million and you're a marshal. Like that's not going to sit well with you. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I started this, that I, that I knew really that I needed to tell my dad's story was after the story broke in the fall of 2021, if you looked up my dad, if you searched Tom Randall, the only thing you found was articles about this crime. Like if you type in Tom Randall right now, the Google results page actually corrects his name. And at the top in big letters says Theodore J. Conrad. And then there's things, you know, like wanted fugitive. And it felt like I was losing my dad all over again. And that my dad was being erased by one day in his life. And that made me so sad. And I knew in that moment that I would need time to grieve And I would need time to be ready, but that I was not going to let the world forget who my dad was. Because my dad is the guy who made my lunch every day and drove me to school 
and made sure that he got out of work early enough to take pictures with me before my senior prom. You know, like he's, he's everybody in the world is so much more than their worst day. And if we were all only ever judged on our worst day, and if that's the only information anybody ever had about us, that's heartbreaking. Ashley, thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. Ashley Randall is the co-host of the podcast Smokescreen, My Fugitive Dad. We reached her in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. As Volodymyr Zelensky arrives in Washington, his country's war effort hangs in the balance. The Ukrainian president is making the trip in a last-ditch effort to secure billions of dollars in funding. Democrats and Republicans have been unable to agree on sending more help to Ukraine. Republicans insist that any aid be tied to changes to U.S. border policies. President Zelensky landed in D.C. today in advance of meetings on Capitol Hill and gave a speech to military leaders at the National Defense University. Here's part of what he had to say. Every one of you with command experience knows what it means when instead of moving forward, you're just watching, waiting for armor or equipment while your enemy is satisfied and preparing for assaults. Any of you with a son or daughter in combat zone just wouldn't get it if they were told that protecting lives could wait because there's a little more debating let me be frank with you, friends, if there's anyone inspired by unresolved issues on Capitol Hill is just Putin and his sick clique. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking earlier today in Washington. Alexei Goncharenko is a Ukrainian opposition MP. He was in D.C. last week to meet with U.S. lawmakers. We reached him today on the road between Odessa and Rome. Alexei, President Zelensky is making that plea. He will continue to make that plea. But do you think that that plea will actually be heard and that he will leave Washington with the money he's asking for? I don't know. I'm not Nostradamus, unfortunately. <laughs> but what I do know... I know that this is not fight for Ukraine. This is not just fight for Europe. This is fight for our values. And this is fight for all civilized world. Because tyrants never stopped. The tyrants can't stop. The only way to stop tyrant is to be stopped. So tyrants should be stopped in Ukraine. Putin should be stopped in Ukraine in order to prevent his new attacks on other countries including those where NATO soldiers and officers, American, British, Canadian, are staying. So if we want to prevent us from the worst possible scenario, we need to stop Putin right now. And Ukrainian courage is giving enough chances for this. But to accomplish this, we need 
support. We need weaponry. We need sanctions. We need financial support. The United States and other countries have given weapons, have given money throughout this conflict. Are, is your country and soldiers prepared for a point where that, that flow will have to stop? First of all, I don't agree with the word have to stop. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. So does it mean that our allies can't support us anymore? In this case, the question is why it was said, we will stay with you, we will stay alongside with you, we will support you as long as it takes. Does it really mean that uh, as long as it takes, it's just two years? So that's my first question. My second question, please don't forget that it's not just a moral obligation, but in 1994, by the way, in December, exactly 29 years ago, Ukraine gave up the third biggest in the world nuclear arsenal. We did it voluntarily for the first time in human history. For this, we received security guarantees from the United States and the United Kingdom. So it's not just a moral obligation, but also legal obligation of the United States of America to stand with us, really as long as it takes, and not just two years and then to be tired. You you visited Washington as well recently. What's your sense of how far apart Democrats and Republicans are right now on agreeing to an aid package for you? That's very, you know, very good question. But but what is the point is that majority of Republicans and all Democrats are absolutely united around Ukrainian support, about support to Ukraine. But today, their border policy of the United States is added to this cocktail, and it became toxic for one of them and difficult to, to swallow for another. So... I mean, Ukraine became a hostage in internal American political game, which is very bad story. I'm not intervening in U.S. politics at all. It's up to U.S. citizens whom to elect Republicans or Democrats, Biden or Trump, what to do with the border. But the one thing I should tell you is that it's in the best interest of both Republicans and Democrats to support Ukraine, to stop Putin, to restore international order to secure international law in other case that would be a catastrophe president Zelensky has met with u.s president joe biden before he'll he'll meet with him again on this trip he's also going to make a pitch to senators he's also going to speak with republican house speaker the new house speaker mike johnson i don't believe they've they've necessarily met certainly not while he's in in this role what do you think that meeting is going to, to be like? What do you expect President Zelensky to say or approach that conversation? We'll hope that President Zelensky will explain them how important uh, is what's going on right now. And I don't believe that Republicans in the U.S. Congress, in the House of Representatives, that, that they can ignore the fact that without U.S. support, tens of thousands of people in Ukraine would be killed by Russians. That is a reality. And like making a decision in voting, they just need to take this responsibility on their shoulders. I hope that President Zelensky will address this message in the right way. So we are all waiting for a result. And I, I really believe, I mean, I know many Republicans myself. I know many Democrats myself. And they are absolutely great people. And I am very thankful to them for all support Ukraine is receiving. So I don't believe 
that they will just you know like burn out all of this all this money all these efforts and all u.s reputation just in in these internal political struggle elections are starting elections will finish but the world and the planet will continue to move on and that's the question it will move on with the u.s leadership or without if the money that he's asking for doesn't come or doesn't come quickly enough what will ukraine do to to try to keep fighting russia ukraine will fight till the end it's existential for us we can't give up if we will give up that will mean that russians will commit genocide against all of us they will kill all of us that's very easy so nobody is going to give up but without us support we will not have chances for for a real victory that will be just a question of survival alexi thank you very much for your time thank you alexi goncharenko is a ukrainian opposition mp he was on a bus on his way to rome is a crisis in Canadian sports. That's how sports minister Carla Qualtrough characterized the situation today. And she also presented her idea for a possible solution, a three-person independent commission to investigate systemic abuse and human rights violations in sports. The 18-month commission will begin next year. The minister says it will be trauma-informed, victim-centered, and forward-looking. What it won't be is the public inquiry that athletes and advocates have been demanding for years. Carla Qualtrough is Canada's Minister of Sport and Physical Activity. We reached her in Ottawa. Minister Qualtrough, one of the headlines to come out of your announcement today is that you're creating this three-person commission to help curb abuse in sport. But why when survivors and advocates, and we've spoken to them on this program as well, have long been calling for a public inquiry, why opt for that three-person commission? So when I got back into this job, I really dug in on the desired outcome. So what advocates, athletes, survivors wanted to see come out of a public inquiry or like a, a national review. Um, and once I kind of gathered all that information, um, I started researching models um, and came to the conclusion that, in fact, I think the best model for this process is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, which is a trauma-informed, victim-centered forward-looking process that dealt with a group of traumatized individuals who weren't supported um, or protected by a system. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Earlier this year, as you well know, Minister, several Canadian athletes spoke to a parliamentary committee about the abuse that they experienced in Canadian sport. They all called for a public inquiry, and that includes Kira McCormack, who, who was a guest on this program. But this is part of her testimony. I don't understand what's holding back a national inquiry. You just wonder, is she even watching? Is the Minister of Sport watching? I just feel ashamed, honestly, to be a Canadian, that this is the reality of what it means and the response to being a Canadian athlete. So what do you say to her and other athletes who've said quite strongly that a public inquiry is what they wanted? And and I absolutely respect that that's her thinking on the process that, that would best lead to the outcomes that we all share. 
But my uh, very strong opinion is that the formality of a public inquiry, um, which has a certain kind of legal rigidity, which means that you can cross-examine people, you can, you have, they have to prove that things happen to them, um, which is the opposite of trauma-informed. That the, you know, the reality of a public inquiry is that we would have to negotiate the terms of reference with the provincial and territorial governments because sport is primarily a provincial jurisdiction. That could take a year. Um, the starting place is not like it was in Dublin. It's not like it was in other inquiries where we had to, um, where we didn't know the extent of the problem. I think with the two parliamentary committees that we've had, with all the media exposure on this issue, with athletes, survivors having come forward, we know that bad things happen in sport. Like, we need to start there. We don't need a public inquiry that will take two years to tell us that bad things happened. We need to get to the work of improving the system and making it more safe. You also discussed today some short-term measures, specifically focusing on, you know, holding people to account if they commit these these kinds of abuses. Yeah. Uh, the integrated funding model was one of those short-term measures. Can you describe for our listeners what that will do? Yeah, so historically, Sport Canada has its funding accountability framework, which is a way that um, the government of Canada funds national and, and multi-service organizations. And last year, we stood up what is called the Accountability and Compliance Unit at Sport Canada in response to what we are hearing in these parliamentary committees that Sport Canada had to do a better job on the accountability side. This integrated funding model is going to bring those two things together. So if you are going to get public funds, um, we expect you to do these things, whether it's good governance, whether it's financial disclosure. It could be that, you know, you have a suite of policies we'd like you to have in place. Um, if you don't have those things in place, we will not fund you. So if we look to the future five years from now, say, yeah. what will success look like for you? My, I mean, my hope is that we actually get to the culture change that everybody is calling for. Like, I think we need to make system improvements. We need to make sure that there are no gaps in policy and make sure that there's heightened accountability. But fundamentally, we need as Canadians to decide that we are no longer going to tolerate the, not just the egregious abuse that, you know, hits the news, but the everyday um, normalized maltreatment in sport that happens every day in our locker rooms, on our benches, you know, for, you know, in, in my, on the disability side, I would say, like, actually get at the discrimination that is happening in sport. Safe sport is sport that is free from discrimination, free from harassment, and free from abuse. If there are young athletes, you know, the young athletes who are listening right now, yeah. maybe they know someone, maybe they're experiencing yeah. one of those things you listed right now. What would mm -hmm. you say to them right now? If it was my own my own child I was talking to, I would say we have not always protected kids, but we we need you to take the courageous step and talk to somebody about this. And, you know, we need clubs and organizations and sport groups to listen. You know, there was a point where we did we checked in hockey at a younger age, and now we have big stop signs on the back of our kids' jerseys because we realize that checking is not healthy for our kids. We need to have big stop signs on the back of every sport um, experience that says this kind of treatment is not right, you know, and fans need to speak up. You know, parents need to stop yelling at um, kids when they're on the rink, you know, somebody else's kids or even their own kids. Um, what we do in sport is very dangerous and a slippery slope, and it, it emboldens people to behave badly. And it's, it might start as, you know, I'm teasing, I'm 
oh, you know, you're, you're too sensitive, that's a crock. We need to stop the bad behavior now. Sorry. No, that's all right. I think crock is acceptable. Uh, <laughs> acceptable terminology. <laughs> Minister Qualtro, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Carla Qualtro is Canada's Minister of Sport and Physical Activity. She's in Ottawa. Every year, Brian holds a hilarious Christmas party. He hangs mistletoe everywhere and he puts elves on every shelf. The soundtrack is either Jingle Dogs or Jingle Cats. And this year's full-body cringe theme is funsy onesies, meaning he expects you to wear a holiday-themed onesie. You would love to tell Brian you won't be drinking eggnog in his kitchen while his dog runs around in costume as a candy cane nine. But if you don't go, he'll never forget it, and he'll never forgive you. Then, while you're reading the Journal of Psychology and Social Psychology, you see a new study entitled, Saying No, the Negative Ramifications from Invitation Declines Are Less Severe Than We Think. The abstract of which explains that the study proves, quote, invitees have exaggerated concerns about how much the decline will anger the inviter or signal that the invitee does not care about the inviter or make the inviter unlikely to offer another invitation in the future and so forth, unquote. Those are your exact fears about Brian, but he'll be fine according to science. Such a relief. But then you check the methodology and your heart plummets. It turns out the researchers just asked people to imagine they were invitees declining invitations and asked other people to imagine they were the hosts whose invitations had been declined. And the imaginary hosts imagined they'd be fine about it. This does not help you with Brian, who is real and whose evite read, come to the party or you'll be sorry. So I guess you're going over there, which means this will be a blue Christmas. Not now, Jingle Cats. After three years in jail, Jimmy Lai is heading to court. The 76-year-old Mr. Lai is the founder of the now-defunct pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily. He was arrested in 2020. Mr. Lai, who is also a British citizen, faces multiple charges under Hong Kong's national security law. He's already serving a five-year sentence on other charges, but if convicted, he faces life in prison. Sebastian Lai is Jimmy Lai's son. We reached him in London. Sebastian, there have already been several delays for your father in his trial. Now that it is set to go, 
ahead next week. How are you feeling? You know, honestly, I want to say anxious, but, you know, there's really no anxiety involved because the whole trial is is, is a sham trial. I mean, there's no jury involved. Uh, it's three uh, judges appointed by the government. Mm -hmm. So so that's that's what we're looking at at the moment. Have you had a chance to, to speak with your father recently or communicate with him at all? I know you haven't seen him since he was arrested. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, I, I haven't been able to um, go back to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I, 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 I could probably go back, but I probably can't be able to leave anymore. You mentioned the, the, how you see the trial, a sham trial as you describe it, but very real consequences, very real things at stake here. Hong Kong Security Minister Chris Tang said back in April that there is a 100% conviction rate in cases concerning national security, as your father's case is yeah. as well. Uh, and we know other activists have pleaded guilty in hopes of, of getting a, a lighter sentence. Is that something that your father has considered? My, my father has stood firm obviously everything you see on the news is him getting arrested and whatnot um for standing up for his beliefs uh but he's actually been doing this for the last 30 years our house has been firebombed he's had um, assassination attempts uh, uh someone once skinned a dog and pinned it on our door uh because of his journalism because he stood firm spoke truth to power and and didn't bend to intimidation so you know, he's someone who's, who has stood for those very principles, and um, he's still doing it now. In, in all of those years and all of those things that your family experienced, what did he tell you about why he was doing that? He, he was a man who talked through actions. He made us realize very, very early on that the freedoms that were available in the free world were, were uh, was something that essentially all of us deserves and something that he was going to tell his campaign for. Well, one thing that, you know, I, 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 was, I, felt, I feel very lucky about looking back to my childhood is that I was never scared. I was never scared because, because dad was never scared. He knew he was doing the right thing. And, and so he's, he's always stood firm. And as a result, I've never, I've never been scared. And, and, and dad actually has a very good line that fear is the cheapest weapon that an autocratic regime has on you. Are you scared now? Um, obviously, I'm in, in, in incredibly worried about him, but I, but I'm not going to let this this fear uh, dictate my judgment as as um, just in the same ways that Dad didn't let this fear dictate his judgment. You know, he he he's a British citizen. He's a, actually it's the only passport he holds. So so he could have left at any point and lived very comfortably, but he knew that what he was standing for mattered more. He knew that he couldn't run a pro-democracy paper in a place like Hong Kong and then leave his journalists uh, in, 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 in their hour of need. So he, he stayed and he stayed with uh, all the other pro-democracy activists. And he did that knowing that he might be arrested one day, that that was, that that was a likely end result. Yeah, I, I, I saw a interview of him right before the handover and he was asked, Hong Kong's handing over to China. Um, obviously, you've always been very critical of, 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 of autocratic regimes. You've always been someone who stood for democracy. Are you going to leave? And, and he thinks about it for a second and he tears up. And he says, no, Hong Kong's my home. Unless my life is threatened, I will not leave. And so, I mean, it's amazing that he's, he, he, he's, he's kept his word. He's kept his word. And, he, and he, I think he, you know, deep down inside, he always knew that a day like this was probably going to happen.
but you know, I think doing the right thing gives him a lot of strength and knowing that he's done everything that he could for the democratic movement also gives him a lot of strength. And you are doing what you can to try to get governments around the world to speak up for your father. You were in Canada last week. You met with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie to ask for Canada's help. Yeah. What was she able to offer you, if anything? Canada was uh, a, a incredible uh, trip. I also met um, many MPs and, you know, everybody was incredibly supportive. I'm more hopeful now than, than before going to Canada. Is there something tangible that, that she offered you or that Canada can do that gives you that hope that so, you can so, share? So Canada, yeah, so Canada could uh, join the call for my father's release. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the U.S. government have uh, called for my father's unconditional and um, immediate release. And uh, um, the EU parliament passed a resolution as well. So, so joining the call, it, it, you know, putting pressure on Hong Kong, telling them that Telling them that they can't claim that they have all these freedoms, they can't lie to the world, and and then and then do these things to my father and and, and other pro democracy uh, um, um, activists. You're in London. You mentioned your father is a, is also a British citizen. So, have you received any assurances or assistance from the British government as well? So, I'm meeting the uh, foreign minister tomorrow. You know, I, I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm finally getting a meeting with him. So, you know, to be completely honest, uh, the UK government has yet to call for my father's release when all these other states have. So it shouldn't have taken this long, but I'm, I'm I'm glad that it's finally moving forward. Do you think your dad knows the work you're trying to do to help him? I think he he, he does, and I think he knows that. You know, Christmas is coming up. His birthday was last Friday, um, and, and I'm just aware that it, you know it, he. Again, he could have been very comfortable, you know, in, in, in Canada, Europe, or the U.S. with his family, and, and, and he decided to take on this journey purely out of principle because he was a, you know, twelve-year-old kid when he arrived into Hong Kong and really fell in love with his freedom and, and, and the city. I, I, I am incredibly proud, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he knows that. So, I'm sure he knows that I'm, I'm, I'm out here, you know, fighting for his release. Sebastian, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sebastian Lai is the son of Jimmy Lai. He's in London. Jimmy Lai is the founder of the now-defunct newspaper Apple Daily. He's facing charges under Hong Kong's national security law. Earlier this month, Lee's Kingsbury's husband was driving in the Kentville, Ontario area when he saw an animal on the side of the road that needed help. It was a pig, a pink plush pig named Peppa, and he couldn't leave her behind. So he brought the stuffed animal home. Ms. Kingsbury spent hours cleaning Peppa up and eventually posted about her on social media with the hope of finding her owner. Community members are now invested, including another Kempville area resident who made posters and put them up around town. Lise Kingsbury told the CBC why she's going to such lengths to find Peppa's owner. I have the time. I'm a grandma. So, you know, I know that my grandkids and my kids had stuffies that were their favorite and they slept with them and they made little beds for them. And, you know, it, it just pulled at my heartstrings. I was looking at her sitting in the laundry room the next morning and I thought, God, somebody's missing her. 
And then what happened was when I did my first post, it seemed all the adults were really enjoying it. Like I had a lot of views and I had put it on a few, like any Kempo ones I could think of. And then what happened was when I started reading all the comments, everybody was saying, oh my God, this is just like Christmas season, the holiday season story. And this is so nice instead of everything else. And I look forward to your next post. And so then now I feel like I need to find an owner and keep everybody happy and in the Christmas mood at the same time. <laughs> so, and I'm I got owner or the owner? The owner. I'm, I'm hoping for the owner, but if not, I'm not quite sure. I think I'm going to go to all my uh, pages and see what they want us to do. You know, I, I would like her then to go to a child that's in need somehow or a family somewhere where I know she's going to be really taken care of. Because even though she's a toy, <laughs> I'm sort of, I've been doing all kinds of things with her. I'm, I'm not attached. I'm just fostering her. Somebody called me Peppa's foster mother. And uh, my granddaughter isn't into stuffies or anything. And I don't feel it would be right if I gave her to my granddaughter. If she wanted one, I'll buy her one. That was Peppa the Pig's foster parent, Lise King, Peppa Pig, not Peppa the Pig, excuse me, Lise Kingsbury speaking with CBC Ottawa reporter Guy Kenville. They knew this tragedy would befall them. They just hoped it wouldn't befall so soon. This morning, the nearly 12,000 members of a Facebook group named simply Chair Watch awoke to the news that the chair in question had taken its final tumble. For years, that chair was balanced precariously atop a dilapidated house on the way to the Jersey Shore, living on the edge but never taking the plunge. Observers say it was ultimately felled by a combination of gusty winds and gravity, which is some comfort at least to those who feared a more unnatural end at the hands of vandals or a demolition crew. Tony DiMeglio is one of the people now left to process the chair's demise. He's a frequent visitor to the area and the founder of Chairwatch. Mr. DiMeglio spoke with Neil this past October. From our archives, here's their conversation. How's the chair doing today, Tony? <laughs> well, all reports are that the chair is doing well. Still dangling? Still dangling, still hanging on with all its magical might. It is it is a sight to behold. I was just looking at some video of it. But how did it first catch your eye? What were you doing? Um, I drive back and forth past this chair every weekend on my way from Philadelphia down to Cape May, New Jersey, where my summer home is. And um, it's always been an older building, older dilapidated building. And then after one storm, the roof literally blew off the entire house, exposing the attic and all the contents. And then, you know, driving back and forth, you notice one day, hey, look at that chair. It's on the edge of the house. I yeah. wonder how long it's going to last. And how long so far has it been up there? It's been three years, right? Teetering wow. on the edge um, through storms, through hurricanes, tornadoes, straight winds, um, blizzards in the wintertime. And it's, it's still there and it's still hanging on. I feel like the, the expression, they don't make them like they used to, applies maybe to this chair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then also living on the edge. 
I have to say, though, so this is a completely abandoned home. I mean, the bones of it, just on another topic, the bones of it are kind of nice. I'm surprised somebody hasn't decided to renovate it. Yeah, the the home is, uh, it's my understanding that the home is owned by an individual, but it is in a, a matter of severe disrepair. There was a fire in the home in mm-hmm. the 70s, and then um, it was purchased and resold, and now the, the current owner is uh, hoping to tear it down someday to build a business. Okay. It, it strikes me that Halloween is approaching. It's already been several Halloweens, I'm sure. Does it become a, 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 an added site at that time of year as well? You would think so. I mean, it's funny because a bunch of our members have produced uh, some really great Halloween photos of the house. Um, There's been some AI-generated photos with, you know, pumpkins and things in the yard. And then there's been AI-generated photos with ghosts and people in the windows. And some really neat neat artwork has come out of it. The the members you talk about, that's the Facebook group, right? Chair Watch? That's right. These are our members that chair watch the uh, Facebook group that I generated on a whim with uh, no idea that things were going to go the way they have. And uh, I really just can't believe it. How many members now? Uh, we're quick. We're on our way to 9,000 members. So why do you think it's, it's so compelling for you and everybody else? Um, I feel like everybody's really drawn to it right now because it's something so simple and satisfying and you know, just pleasant to, to keep an eye on. It's not political, you know, with everything going on in the world today with politics and now war and, and it's just something that's it's fun and people can focus on something silly for a short period of time in their day. And something that's been able to withstand so much, I guess people take something from that too, I bet. Absolutely. People have gleaned a lot of, uh, people have tried to take away, you know, you got to hang on and, you know, if the chair can keep going, so can I, you know, we've heard a lot of different things from a lot of different people and it's, you know, if some people want to take motivation from it or whatever they need to do, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's there to, to help them get through their day. Is there one meme um, or post that that tops everything for you? <laughs> uh, there's one for me personally. You know, it's, it's funny. It's um, it's a meme that the storm, the, the chair can't weather the storm. And the chair has responded that I am the storm. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> How long? How much longer do you think it can last? I think I think the chair the chair has the power to last as long as you know to to never come down. I'm more <laughs> worried about the house underneath it coming down before the chair blows off. But are you nervous though? If if you know whatever happens, maybe the chair survives, but a wall does come down. Are you nervous <laughs> for that day? You think you'll be sad? Well, I mean, you know. Probably. I mean, you know, it'll, it'll be the, the end of a story. You know, it's something that we can entertain now. And then once it's over, it's over. You know, but what we're hoping is that we can uh, get our hands on the chair when it does eventually come down and give it a rightful send off. You know, some people oh. are talking about a charity event. Some people are talking about, you know, burying it. Some people are, you know, there's a lot of goofy things. I personally feel like the chair should get a Viking funeral. <laughs> And what would that entail for those who don't know what a Viking funeral is? Because some people feel well, like maybe the Smithsonian has to set aside a, a space for this. <laughs> I think it, a Viking funeral, proper send off. The chair needs to be placed on a on a on a pyre on a boat and set <laughs> off into a lake somewhere and lit on fire and let it go down that way. Why? Why so dramatic? Well, I mean, it, it seems fitting, doesn't it? I mean, this whole thing is silly, so let's can, let's let it be silly right to the very end. Let's punctuate it with some more drama. Absolutely.
Well, Tony, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Tony DiMaglio is the founder of the Facebook group Chair Watch. We reached him in Philadelphia back in October. This morning, the group learned that the chair has, in fact, fallen. No word on whether it will get that Viking funeral. You've been listening to As It Happens on the CBC Listen app. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, After the World at 6. And you can always read more about the stories and conversations we have on As It Happens on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. I'm Neil Kirksall. Thanks for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.